Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday. The band's been shipped off to nursery. The pot of Yorkshire has been drunk and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we haphazardly call the noughties and to the football of its time. Welcome to the Noughties Nostalgia Podcast today. It is episode 32 on today's show. We've got the Liverpool-Real Madrid match from 12 years ago from that fantastic display at the Cop at Anfield. We'll be talking about magical European nights under the Anfield lights too. We're going to Germany and to the Bundesliga and to the 2003-04 season in the Table Never Lies where we have a surprise winner. But first, since it's North London Derby Day this weekend, we're going to talk about some of the best North London derbies of the 2000s. I've got some contractual obligations before we kick things off. Give us a like, give us a subscribe, bang them notifications on. Now I've got that crap out of the way, let's kick things off today. Welcome to History Time on What If Football's Not Is Nostalgia Podcast. The date is November the 9th, 1896. The result, Woolwich Arsenal 2, or Woolwich Arsenal 2, Tottenham 1. December 1909, the first top flight clash between the pair ended 1-0 to the Arsenal, funnily enough. The wins were traded fairly equally over the following 60 years as both spent most of the time in the top flight. Spurs took the double over Arsenal when they won the double in 61. Arsenal likewise with their own double in 71. Ray Kennedy's winner at White Hart Lane in May 1971, securing the league on the final day when Arsenal needed either a win or a scoreless draw to take the league title. Obviously, White Hart Lane and league titles and winning league titles in this match will become a feature somewhere down the road. They traded semi-final wins in the late 80s and early 90s, with Arsenal claiming uh, the League Cup final berth in 1987 with a win, and likewise Tottenham winning the 1991 FA Cup semi-final, perhaps most famous for Paul Gascoigne's marvellous free kick at Wembley, and the clubs were both going to win those trophies as a result. Arsenal put Spurs out of two further FA Cup semi-finals, first in 1993 when they went on to win the trophy against Sheffield Wednesday, and then in 2001 where they looked as though they were going to win the trophy, but 
Michael Owen happened, didn't he? And Liverpool won the domestic cup treble, or the cup treble rather. Arsenal, as we sit here now, have the advantage in terms of wins on 82 wins, while Spurs have won just 66 of the games with 54 of them, the spoils shared. And in the period that we usually cover on Wednesdays, the 2000s, Spurs were, let's face it, utterly woeful. Um, the last Premier League win, the last meeting between the two sides of the 20th century went the way of Spurs. Goals from Tim Sherwood, Stefan Everson sealing a, uh, a uh, last week, last league win for Spurs up until 2010, April 2010. So for the entirety of the 2000s, Tottenham never beat Arsenal in the league, at least. The other win did come, the only win in the 2000s came in January 2008 in a absolute barnstormer of a League Cup tie, which we'll talk about later on. So... Tottenham firmly in Arsenal's shadow. And if we're talking the Premier League era, I think we do have a defined break in decades. So in the 90s and even throughout the Arsene Wenger and George Graham days, Tottenham were Arsenal's equals. They'd met each other, let's count this up, 17 times. Arsenal had won five, Spurs had won five and they'd drawn seven. And aside from the aforementioned win in November 99, Spurs had done the double over Arsenal in the... First ever Premier League season with Spurs' last win at Highbury coming in 1993, in May 1993. Spurs would get wins in 95 in January and November and Arsene Wenger won his first North London derby in November 1996, 3-1, just a month after he'd officially taken charge. But they would draw the following four under Wenger, including two draws in Arsenal's Premier League winning side of 97-98, which would be their first league title in seven years. And the crucial moment, the sort of changing of the guard, I believe, aside from obviously external, you know, externally Arsenal were supremely successful. Tottenham had just won a League Cup in 99. Arsenal had won the uh, League and Cup double in 98. But the crucial moment came in the 2001 FA Cup semi-final. Saul Campbell was Tottenham's captain at the time and saw his side lose 2-1 at Old Trafford. Patrick Vieira, Robert Perez scoring the goals. Arsenal continuing their sort of rampaging towards honours. Obviously, they won't win this one. They'd you know go another another season without a trophy, but the following season would be crucial. Saul Campbell was in his peak and believed he was sort of wasting his time at Tottenham. He was out of contract. He couldn't agree a contract renewal with Spurs. Spurs were aggressively mid-table in this time. He'd only won one trophy at Tottenham, which was that 1999 League Cup final. And he had offers abroad, I think from one from Barcelona, springs to mind, maybe Real Madrid at the time, but he chose perhaps the most flammable uh, club to go to and he just made the short journey from Tottenham to Arsenal, signed for Arsenal on a free. Um, yeah, he'd, just won, he'd won just one trophy at Spurs and within nine months he'd won, he'd eclipsed that and won two at Arsenal. They'd won the double again, the double-double from Arsenal and his return to White Hart Lane was, let's say, ferocious, to say the least. Um, Gus Poirier levelled in stoppage time in a 1-1 draw. The spoils were shared. The return was a 2-1 win for Arsenal on the way to a second title in five seasons. And I believe Sol Campbell was vindicated with his decision almost immediately. With you know He's now playing Champions League football. Arsenal didn't do much in the Champions League in the first sort of seven, eight years under Wenger, really. But... You know, he's, he's playing Champions League football. He's, obviously, he was first one of the first choices for England anyway at Spurs or not. 
but he was solidified in that defence alongside Rio Ferdinand going into the 2002 World Cup. Obviously, Tony Adams had uh, long since retired for his country. And then we get to the Invincibles. <laughs> Saul Campbell, had, even in 2002-03 season, which Arsenal didn't have the best season, they were pipped to the Premier League by Manchester United. Um, but they did win the FA Cup in 2003, so that's you know another chalk in the... Uh, Colin for Campbell uh, going to Arsenal and being vindicated for it. And then obviously the season after, we had the Invincibles. Arsenal drew 2-2. At all places, White Hart Lane to win the Premier League. And yeah, it was an undefeated season. Wrapped up. So Campbell again, forewarned in terms of trophies, vindicated. Obviously in this time, we had that amazing Thierry Henry goal. Ran, ran the distance of the pitch, scoring, I think it was 3-0 that game. It was in 2002. Fantastic. One of the best players in the North London derby, at least in the Premier League era anyway. So, being in Arsenal's shadow, winning title after title after title, obviously 2004 will be their last league title. As we speak, probably last one for a while. <laughs> Don't want to upset any Arsenal fans. But anyway, Arsenal finally got a hold in Europe. They run to the 2006 Champions League final, Campbell scoring in the final. Ultimately, though, it was in defeat, so that would have capped off um, a brilliant career for Saul Campbell, you know, changing changing allegiances in 2001 and then within five years winning the lot. But the Champions League would be out of Arsenal's reach. They'd go out to Chelsea in 2004, and since Campbell left and they'd moved to the Emirates, they'd not done anything in the Champions League. In the 2000s, Spurs' previous highest finish was 7th in the 1994-95 season. The Jurgen Klinsmann, Sheen had worn off and they weren't improved upon. They'd finished 10th, 12th, 9th, 10th, 14th, 9th. It was perpetually the same story whilst Arsenal had a bit of a dip under Bruce Rioch after George Graham's, you know, he was sacked and obviously that the whole story with the bung and everything. George Graham had gone to Tottenham and not really improve things there as he would as he did at Arsenal in the 80s and 90s. And then obviously Arsene Wenger, October 96. Bergkamp had come in before. He'd, he had uh, his dirty little fingers all over the Patrick Vieira signing before he came in. So he's got a, a solid base of a team there. Obviously the defence from George Graham was still there, so they just went from strength to strength. While Spurs had a rotating cast of Rebrov, Poyer, Sheringham came back. So you've got players that are sort of on the back nine of their careers, but mixed in with players like Ledley King, who unfortunately was cut down by injuries far too often. You had exciting players like Michael Carrick, Jermaine Defoe, Robbie Keane, all of which would uh, leave in some way or another character Man United winning the Champions League. Keane briefly to Liverpool and among others. So Arsenal always had a solid base of like Lundberg, Pires, Henri, Bergkamp, Vieira, Adams, Keon, Campbell, Seaman, Lehman, while Spurs sort of rotated and weren't at that quality around that time. They they were growing close to closing that divide. There was a memorable 5-4 match at White Hart Lane in November 2004. I think that was still in the undefeated run of 49 games. It must have been because I remember bitterly being disappointed personally as a Manchester United fan that they lost because we all wanted non-Arsenal fans all wanted Arsenal to lose eventually they'd beaten Nottingham Forest record they'd gone undefeated they were the best team in Europe essentially but they wouldn't even win the Premier League that year 
Obviously, neither would Spurs. Martin Yall's first full season at Spurs was a 2005-06 season. And the tide for me was that it was definitely turning. You've got Tom Huddleston, Jermaine Genus, Aaron Lennon. They all came in. It was a big rejuvenation, regeneration. Even Edgar Davids came in. And Spurs were defeated just twice until Christmas. And that run included a 1-1 draw at home to Arsenal. A draw salvaged by Robert Perez, which would be a theme in the later North London derby whilst Spurs were defeated by Chelsea and Bolton, but they held their own against teams like Manchester United and Liverpool. And it looked as though they were uh, going to take their supposed rightful spot in the uh, top four. Or, you know, they, w- they were part of the big six, the old big six, when the Premier League came into uh, fruition in 1992. And by the time the reverse fixture came around on April the 22nd, 2006, Arsenal had been outside the top four since November. They were four points off Spurs with a game in hand, admittedly, and were in between legs of the Champions League semi-final and the semi-final that they were in for the first time in Premier League history, or Champions League history anyway. They'd taken a 1-0 lead to Villarreal and obviously going through teams like Real Madrid, Juventus, I think they were sort of distracted by that and the league form sort of suffered as a result. Tottenham, they had no distractions went out in both round, first rounds of the cup, um, but they weren't in Europe either. And they'd come off the back of a home defeat to Manchester United, but crucially held the advantage. They played essentially the bare minimum of football. They played 40 games. Third round of the cup, FA Cup went out. Second round of the League Cup went out. No Europe. They were fresh and it came down to the last North London derby to ever be played at Highbury. Robbie Keane broke the deadlock after an hour, but once more it was another late Arsenal goal. And Arsenal were Man United's main, main rivals for me as a fan growing up in terms of this season, because it was Chelsea and Chelsea, by this point, they'd run away with the league again, or they would beat United to win the league around this sort of time period, April 2006. But I still had that lingering animosity as a, as a, uh, as a 13-year-old towards Arsenal, and I wanted them to lose, but it was a late Arsenal goal when a win for Spurs would all but confirm their place in the following season's Champions League. And these two draws, the two 1-1 draws, would be integral in the end. Arsenal won at Sunderland, they won at Manchester City, and they finished their time at Highbury with a 4-2 win against Wigan. And Highbury's last match was going to be a celebration regardless, but because of Lasagna Gate, because of Spurs' 2-1 loss to West Ham, they had a second reason to celebrate. They were to play Champions League football again by the skin of their teeth. But Lasagna Gate or not, the difference was those two 1-1 draws that they threw away essentially right at the death to Robert Perez and Thierry Henry, Martin Yoll and Arsene Wenger having a scrap in that reverse fixture as well, which you can see on screen now, which is which is <laughs> funny as a man if I'm looking on. Anyway, the catalyst for change, another catalyst for change would be Harry Redknapp's appointment, which we'll get onto later on. But... Tottenham's shadow would continue. They wouldn't play Champions League football until 2010. Arsene Wenger's peak as Arsenal manager was over and they squabbled together in the mud. Arsenal obviously routinely qualified for the Champions League. Tottenham didn't, but they were on the way up. They battled through, that Spurs that is, they battled through the reins of Martin Yall, Juan de Ramos and Harry Redknapp. Juan de Ramos gifting them their, as of speaking right now, they might break it this, this season, but... Speaking right now, the League Cup in 2008 under Wando Ramos was Spurs' last trophy. And if football ended now, that would be their last ever trophy, beating Chelsea 2-1 thanks to a Jonathan Woodgate face in extra time. Arsenal, however, had to wait until 2014 for a trophy, so that's nine years from the 2005 FA Cup. And since they've won four FA Cups, Spurs, obviously nothing. 
And Spurs were firmly in the shadow, despite that quarterfinal in the Champions League in 2011. Beating AC Milan, beating Inter Milan, that superb Gareth Bale performance. And that was all thanks to the likes of Harry Redknapp, who turned Spurs really into a Champions League team. You've got Rafa van der Vaart, was sort of underrated as a Tottenham player now, I think, when you've got when you've had the sort of Pochettino era of Harry Kane, Deli Alley, etc. etc. Hugo Lloris, Christian Eriksen. And Spurs would return to the Champions League in twenty sixteen under the Argentine whilst Arsenal were on their way out, playing their final Champions League campaign in twenty sixteen seventeen and they've not been back since. And their only means of qualification to Champions League that's the only likely means it seems now is winning the Europa League and qualifying for the Europa League, really. I asked my followers on Twitter, what is the peak of the North London derby in the Premier League era? Anyway, Harry Holland and Jake Collinson said the 4-4 draw in 2008, which was Harry Redknapp's first match in charge. Joseph Kivin liked the um, Sky Sports fan zone for that game, giving us a uh, laugh cry emoji at that, which is a classic episode of that. Also see Fulham versus Blackburn for other shouty fan zone. Definitely of its time. that um, Alex Rhodes, good friend of the show, says David Bentley from Halfway, which is from that 4-4 uh, draw on in 2008. Whilst we have In the Name of Football podcast and uh, Joe as well, uh, another good friend of the show, all claiming the 5-2 win at the Emirates for Arsenal in 2012. Joe also says he watched, uh, he remembers two matches vividly watching with his cousin who supports Spurs. Spurs won 3-2 and then Arsenal won 5-2. Between 2010 and 2013, I think they were truly equals. Spurs are probably a shade better than Arsenal now. Arsenal were far and away better than Spurs in 2000s. But in those three years when it was before Poch, before Harry Kane, Deli Alli, Eriksen, Rafa van der Vaart was banging them in. You've got Emmanuel Adebayor crossing the divide, um, antagonising Arsenal fans as he often did. But Arsenal were better under Wenger. Tottenham better since Pochettino and St. Totterenham's Day, the day that marks the occasion when Spurs can't overtake Arsenal seems to come later and later and seems to come less and less. Uh, the last time was in 2016 when Arsenal overtook Spurs on the final day, the season where they put the pressure on and Tottenham ended 17 years for an away win at Arsenal in the Premier League in November 2010 and that sort of the 3-2 win there that um, Joe was alluding to. I think that was when the tide was sort of turning and they were definitely equals then obviously Wenger's last few years were tumultuous to say the least for Arsenal and Arsenal have been without a win in the North London derby since December 2018 when they won 4-2 and it's been their only win in the North London derby since Wenger left Arsenal now the clubs spend their time desperately clawing back to get into the Champions League now in terms of 2020-2021 season probably Spurs are better placed under Mourinho than Mikel Arteta, who's probably building more of a project than Mourinho, you could say. So maybe a tortoise and the hare scenario at play there. And this is the first season where there hasn't been North London representation in the Champions League since 1997-98 season, obviously. With the expansion of the Champions League and Arsenal's success, they played in the Champions League from 98 all the way through to 2017. Obviously, that spell broken by Wenger's demise and then several other managers such as Unai Emery and Mikel Arteta. So I asked, what is the best North London, what is the best London derby after the North London derby? Raging Phoenix on Twitter says, Millwall versus West Ham, hands down. Harry Holland likes the Fulham QPR 
stadium share sort of dynamic there in the early 2000s and always likes um, when Tottenham and West Ham face. I put it to our Twitter followers on a poll. West Ham Millwall won out. Tottenham, West Ham second. Chelsea and Arsenal third. I also asked what colour is North London to get a bit of a um, bit of a gauge before proceedings this weekend and Tottenham shaded it. 54.3% to Arsenal's 45.7%. So that sort of gauges the... Um, the mood of the times when Tottenham are just creeping ahead of Arsenal. Maybe if I did it 10 years ago, if Twitter polls were even a thing in 2011, Arsenal would have shaded it up definitely in the 2000s. We're going to talk about another successful team in red in England, and that is Liverpool after a short break. Welcome back. Another history lesson here on the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. Liverpool, they were a second tier team, plodding second tier team, and they acquired the Huddersfield Town Manager. They were living off former glories, which sounds familiar of a bygone age in the 2010s. Their previous league title was in 1947. They'd won the league five times and finally returned to the top flight in 1962. That Huddersfield Town Manager was, of course, Bill Shankly. The foundations, the gates... Everything around the club was changed. Shankly won the league in 64, the FA Cup in 65, Liverpool's first FA Cup, if you believe, and a, another league title in 1966. In their first cracks off uh, European football, they bowed out to an, a supreme Inter Milan team in the 1965 semi-finals with a comeback, with Inter Milan winning 3-0, overturning a 3-1 defeat at Anfield. Liverpool were blown away two years later to Ajax in the last 16 in 1966-67, losing 7-3 on aggregate. And in the season between that, they made their first European final, losing to Dortmund in the Cup Winners' Cup. That came after wins in Turin, Liège, Budapest and Glasgow. And Shankly wouldn't claim another glory domestic or otherwise until 1973 with a third league title. They'd also win their first UEFA Cup, their first European honour that year, beating Borussia Mönchengladbach 3-2 on aggregate. Gladbach, a team that would be inextricably linked with uh, Liverpool's first forays into European football. It was their fifth go at that tournament, Liverpool's fifth go at the UEFA Cup slash Fairs Cup. The closest they'd come was the 1971 semi-final, losing out to um, Don Revy's Leeds United. Shankly would bow out in 1974 with an FA Cup, whilst his successor, Bob Paisley, and former coach to former assistant to Shankly, would, his first season would be trophyless, unsuccessful. But it was their only trophyless season until 1984-85, which was a season of close misses. Obviously, we have to talk about Hazel in that when they lost the Champions League European Cup final to Juventus. They also missed out to Everton in the league, coming second, and Manchester United in the semi-finals of the FA Cup. However, in the meantime, success came domestically. Of course, they won seven leagues and four league cups. Four league cups on the spin, so. But the European Cup finally came to Anfield. Gladbach, the opponents in the UEFA Cup final from 73, were beaten in the 1977 European Cup final, the second English team to win the European Cup. They followed that up by becoming the first English team to win the Cup back-to-back, beating Club Bruges a year later. They go out in the first rounds in the following seasons to Nottingham Forest, who eventual winners, and Dynamo Tbilisi. Before, they met Real Madrid for the very first time, and Real Madrid and Liverpool is what we'll speak about today. Liverpool would, of course, beat Real Madrid with an Alan Kennedy late winner in Paris. 
Liverpool winning their fourth European Cup three years later against Roma in 1984. And given that Liverpool and Real Madrid share 19 European Cups and are what we'd consider quote-unquote royalty of European football it's and share 19 European Cups, it's bizarre that they've only met six times. And these include two finals, the 1981 one, which was spoken of, and the more recent 2018 one, which has them tied at one all in that respect in finals. So when Alan Kennedy netted the late winner in the very first meeting, 28 years later was the second meeting. Yossi Benayoun got a similarly late winner in Madrid in the last 16 win. And Real Madrid was sort of in this time frame, so we're talking 2008-9 season. They were in a sticky period between Galactico's era. So you had the second wave, which was Ronaldo, Kaká, etc. You had the first wave, which was Figo, Ronaldo, Beckham, Zidane. So in the sixth season since their last triumph in 2002, Real Madrid had only got past the last 16 twice. In 03, they were bowed out to the semi-finals to Juventus, Pavel Nedved's brilliance there. 2004, they regressed a round prior, losing on aggregate to Monaco. 5-5 on an away goals loss. Morientes and Ludovic Julie come back from 5-2 down in in Monaco to tie it up on away goals and Monaco would go through to semi-finals and eventual finals. Then Real Madrid just bowed out at the last 16 in 2005 to Juventus, 2006, 2007 to Bayern and 2008. Perhaps most embarrassingly to Roma, obviously Roma aren't top tier European club. Obviously they're in a rung, rung below so that was sort of almost the final straw. They would obviously bounce back from that defeat and this defeat in 2009, hiring Jose Mourinho off the back of Pep Guardiola and Barcelona's dominance, both domestically and abroad, and finally broke that last 16 curse, obviously helped with the signings of players like Cristiano Ronaldo and Kaká. Anyway, Rail's last previous knockout tie against English opposition was a Bernabeu loss. That was to Arsenal in 2006. They lost the first leg 1-0 at the Bernabeu and Liverpool made sure it went the same way 12 years ago today. They blew them apart. Fernando Torres got the goal against an old nemesis, obviously coming from Atletico Madrid. Gerard doubled from the spot and by half-time the game was effectively over. Real Madrid needed three goals at Anfield and Liverpool were facing the cop in the second half. It was, it was never going to go well. Gerard's second shortly after the break secured that. And even Andrea De Senna, who was in a bit of a rich vein of goal scoring form in March 2009 which is very specific he got a fourth as he would do four days later in an all or nothing Premier League tie at Old Trafford and this was sort of in the middle of kind of on the back nine of Liverpool's first return to European glory it would be Liverpool's last dance under Rafael Benitez in terms of European prominence making the quarterfinals losing to Chelsea Liverpool's European ban from the Hazel disaster from 1985 was finally ended in 1991 where they went out to Genoa in the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup. They would make the semi-finals of the Cup Winners' Cup, losing to Paris Saint-Germain in 1997. And finally, in 2001, they claimed their first European trophy since 1984 where they would have to wait until Gerard Houllier took sole charge of the club, the Cup treble, as we've spoken of earlier on the show, when they beat Arsenal in the FA Cup, they'd previously beaten Birmingham in the League Cup on penalties. And in Gelsenkirchen, I think it was, or Dortmund, one of those, they got a golden goal win over Deportivo Alaves, winning 5-4 that night, and finally returning to the Champions League with a third-place finish later that year. 
Liverpool would bow out to eventual finalists by Leverkusen in 2002 and were humiliated by Basel in the groups in 2002-03 season. And finally, under new manager Rafa Benitez, after the loss of the £20 million match and Julia got them back in the 2003-04 season after Newcastle had collapsed. Rafael Benitez took charge of Liverpool back in the Champions League and it went down to the wire in the groups. Obviously, Olympiacos, Steven Gerrard's last minute. It was a 3-1 win, but last minute winner to get them in because they need to win by two clear goals. They had the revenge against Leverkusen. They beat Juventus. You had the goal from the moon against Chelsea and the miracle of Istanbul. And... Funnily enough, between 2004 and 2009, Liverpool it was Liverpool's longest successive run in the European Cup stroke Champions League since the days of Bob Paisley when they occupied a place in the European Cup from 1976 right the way through to 1985. They would of course reach the final in and amongst that, a second final in three seasons, losing to Milan in 2007 and would have to wait 11 years for another final. And this is where we see the fourth meeting between Liverpool and Real Madrid. Loris Karius, obviously, dropping a couple of clangers. Um, the defeat would tie the clubs up at three wins each because in and amongst that, I said it was the fourth meeting, it wasn't. They'd met twice in the 2014-15 group stages. Cristiano Ronaldo helping defeat Brendan Rodgers' Liverpool home and away. Obviously, the season after Brendan Rodgers and Stephen Gerrard and Luis Suarez, Daniel Sturridge, almost won the champion almost won the Premier League and got through to the Champions League as a result. So I asked what constitutes a magical night under the Anfield lights? Alex Road says the cop is the strongest home end in Europe for its ball sucking abilities. I'll leave the innuendo to him on that one. And Harry Holland says Steve Stephen Jarrett against Olympiacos was a prime example. Uh you can still hear the commentary from Andy Gray, um Yabute, etc. At George HS2706 states, in the words of Jose Mourinho, I prefer not to speak. George, obviously a big Chelsea fan there. And Joseph Kiffin, on the other side of the coin, a big Liverpool fan states, it's like something from the Roman Empire, the music, the fans, the flags, the atmosphere. And yeah, you can't deny, I can't deny that even as a Manchester United fan. Let's quickly scoot along. Obviously Liverpool would win a sixth European Cup in 2019 in Madrid. So the circle is complete there. Let's move on to the next segment where we're going to Germany and to the table never lies in the Bundesliga of 2003-04. And what you're looking at here is the Bundesliga, how it looked 17 years ago on this very day, on this very moment. Now the top eight looks fairly normal. You've got Hamburg and Gladbach in the bottom half. Both were sort of in between boom periods. Hamburg have since tailed off and now occupy a spot in the second tier of German football. They're now 10th and 13th respectively. They'd finish rather inoffensively at 8th and 11th in mid-table, crushingly mid-table. And the only surprise aside from Bayern trailing by a huge seven points, as you see on the screen now, is that team in fourth place, Bochum. And they were knocking on the door of Champions League football. They hadn't begun well. They got one point from the opening three, but then they had Danish, Peter Madsen, they had Iranian, Vahid Hashimayan, and they got going. The Iranian got the ball going in Rostock, scoring the equaliser and scoring another equaliser against Hertha Berlin. Madsen saved a point in Gladbach and they both bagged two in a 4-0 thrashing of Kaiserslautern, both converging on goal with a plum. 
Both Schalke and Dortmund were put to the sword in goals without conceding and both were at the races to everyone's surprise. Yet even with his fine running, running form, they, they were restricted to sixth. They were slightly outside the UEFA Cup spots and a stick, it was, this was due to a, a sticky patch before the Christmas break which saw losses in Freiburg, in Bremen, in Munich. And it seems like that would be the the Hollywood way to just... That's a drop-off at the sign of adversity and you'd roll into the latter stages of Act 1, but no. Bochum then went 10 undefeated. The table, we look at it now, Bochum had just got a point against Hertha in match 8 of that run. That run, though, would end in defeats to Dortmund and Schalke, the teams that had beaten successively earlier on in the season. And it left Bochum on 42 points in 7th place, leapfrogged by, by both of the clubs. And they were crucially... Nine points off Champions League football. The pipe dream, it seemed, well, it was over. Uh, the front line of Madsen and Hashemayan would score 29 between them and only the likes of Leverkusen's Bobtov and Franke, Dortmund's Collett and Ewerfen, and Bremen's Ailton and Ivan Klasnic would uh, top them in terms of strike partnerships in the Bundesliga that season. They All, the, all three of those clubs, all four of those clubs, including Bochum, had a strike partnership in the top 10 scorers in the Bundesliga that season. Hashemayan would be poached by Bayern. Madsen wouldn't be there by 2005-06 season where he was signed by FC Köln. And Bochum would finish those nine points outside the Champions League places, but essentially recuperate to fifth place. They'd play UEFA Cup football whilst Dortmund, Schalke, Hamburg, Wolfsburg, arguably bigger names than Wolfsburg, were bound for the Intertoto Cup, which means this is the Intertoto Cup segment of the Noise Nostalgia podcast today. Wolfsburg. They were thrashed by Swiss team Tun, 7-3 in round two. Dortmund were bounced out on away goals by Genk in round three. Hamburg edged out by two 1-0 defeats by Villarreal in the semi-finals. And Schalke, they squeezed through the only German side to win the Intertoto Cup that season, beating Slovan Liberic. I say the only German side to win the Intertoto Cup that season because three teams won it. Yeah, it's bizarre. So, they all went into... Well, they all... Schalke went into the UEFA Cup, joining Bochum and Stuttgart and Schalke. Joining them, though, there was Aachen, the fairy tale run to the Pokal final. This, the town that is twinned with a town near me, Halifax, they beat Bayern Munich, they beat Gladbach in the latter stages, but they were heartbroken by Bremen. Bremen, of course, we'll talk about much later on. They would join the aforementioned clubs in the following season, but Bochum wouldn't make the groups, losing out to Standard Liège on away goals, whilst Aachen got all the way through to the knockout stages of the UEFA Cup as it was then joining Schalke and Stuttgart and they beat Lille and the AEK Athens on the way which is just absolutely phenomenal when you think about it but it's Germany it's the UEFA Cup so that means none of them took it seriously and they all went out in the last 16, last 32 days losing Schalke lost 2-1 on aggregate to Shakhtar Aachen lost 2-1 on aggregate to AZ Alkmaar and Stuttgart lost 2-0 on aggregate to Parma but let's get back on track. Let's go back to the Bundesliga in the 2003-04 season. We have to discuss the champions. And you know it, it wasn't the bigger teams like Schalke or Dortmund. It wasn't Leverkusen or Stuttgart who we'll get onto as well. And it wasn't even Bayern. Household names that you might know from this, or semi-household names from this Werder Bremen team is Ivan Klasnic and Ailton banging in the goals as aforementioned. Angelos Karasteas, he'd score just four goals in 24 Bundesliga appearances. But it would have that magical summer in 2004, obviously. Paul Stalteri was future Spurs-bound. Valerian Ismail, which 
current Barnsley boss, doing wonders for Barnsley in the championship there. And Johan Mikud, he performed well, chipping in with 10 goals, 10 crucial goals, as we'll talk about later on as well. It looked as though they would break all, all sorts of goal-scoring records. They put four beyond Schalke, Köln, Freiburg. They got three against Frankfurt, Hertha, Hansa, Rostock, Leverkusen. They beat Wolfsburg 5-3. The scoring sort of dipped away a bit and they only scored, they scored 79 goals all that season. But as we look at this table now, they'd beaten 1860 Munich 2-0 on this weekend and they'd not conceded since a 2-1 win against Borussia Mönchengladbach and they'd not lost, crucially, since October the 18th. So that's five months since the uh, 3-1 defeat to Stuttgart. And after that 3-1 defeat to Stuttgart, they were fourth, two points behind Leverkusen who headed the table. And they could have beaten Bayern Munich at home, but that pesky Claudio Pizarro equalised late on. But they did go to Leverkusen. Leverkusen still a year and a bit removed from that Champions League final. They would be treble and they won. They won 3-1 and rubber stamped their credentials going forward. They had successive matches against Schalke and Dortmund. Escaped with four points and no goals conceded. So suddenly Bremen were seven points ahead of Bayern. They were 19 ahead of Leverkusen in fifth. The so-called probably second best team in terms of ability and form in that time in the Bundesliga. And a win the following week against Köln extended that lead to nine from Bayern. However, Bayern would be inevitable. They would rejuvenate their form and rejuvenate their form in time for the meeting at the Olympia Stadion on May the 8th. Bayern were coming off the back of a 2-1 win in Köln, which relegated them or put them pretty close to relegation, whilst Bremen battered Hamburg 6-0. And the points difference was six. And it would be aggressively Bundesliga of them to beat Bremen and then Bremen to crumble because Bremen did have Leverkusen to come and a tricky trip to Hansa Rostock on the final day, especially if nerves were jangling a little bit. Anyway, a Bremen win would confirm the Bundesliga in Munich, sort of like Tottenham and Arsenal style there or Arsenal Man United style from 2002. Anyway, we get to the high stakes match and one person that you didn't think would fumble Oliver Kahn. He fumbled the ball right to Ivan Klasnic. Klasnic got the opener and from then on, Bremen just blew Bayern apart. You had Fabian Ernst clipping through. Johan Mikudu was given the freedom of Munich. He lobbed an on-rushing Kahn and it was 2-0 in no time. And Ailton, the golden boot winner, with 29 goals in a 34-game season, which is phenomenal. It's Lewandowski numbers. He scored a superb goal, curled it in beyond Kahn. He had no chance. It was 3-0 before the halftime break and Bremen would win 3-1. They'd win the Bundesliga in Munich and on their celebration tour, they'd ship six to Leverkusen. They'd lose to Hansa, but crucially complete the double with the Pokal win over Ackham with a late winner in that match. Ailton would go to Schalke in the summer. Mikud would go to Bordeaux in 2006. Timborowski would retire in Bremen via a year in Bayern Munich before returning. And Bayern Munich's Champions League spot, despite the loss, um, it would be confirmed. Less said, less could be said about Stuttgart, who were... Uh, had to fight Leverkusen in Bundesliga's own £20 million match. And they were beaten by Hamburg as Leverkusen beat Köln, who was who were by this point Bundesliga 2 bound. And 6-2, Leverkusen 6-2 win versus Bremen, left Stuttgart hanging on by a thread in for that third and final Champions League spot. They'd beaten, Stuttgart had beaten Bayern Munich, heaping on their misery. And they'd, let's not forget, they'd got to the last 16 of the Champions League that season. They'd lost to Chelsea though. But to go back to that point, they'd have to beat or at least draw against Leverkusen on that final day. But Dimitar Berbatov, Bernd Schneider, 2-0 Leverkusen. 
Stuttgart would not be back in the Champions League for some time. And as that was transpiring, three clubs fought for their Bundesliga survival at the other end. Kaiserslautern had Dortmund at home, seemingly insurmountable Dortmund. They needed just a point, which would relegate 1860 Munich and Eintracht Frankfurt. 1860 were at Gladbach, whilst Frankfurt were at Hamburg, and both led inside 30 minutes. However, Kaiserslautern did as well, and uh, despite Dortmund's equaliser through Jan Koller, 1860 and Frankfurt's respective crumblings in the second half to Gladbach and Hamburg meant Kaiserslautern survived 1860 and Frankfurt went down. But Freiburg at this time, uh, Frankfurt, sorry, at this time were accustomed to yo-yoing and they were built for it and they would bounce straight back and survive all the way up until the 2011-12 season where they got relegated again, I think. 1860 though, they had returned to the Bundesliga in 1994. They'd reached the heights of the Champions League qualification. Obviously they'd lose that to Leeds and they fell back into the second tier, almost dropping to the third tier the season after and they haven't been back to the Bundesliga. They currently operate in the third tier of German football where Hansa Rostock and Kaiserslautern, two teams from this Bundesliga season as well, share that league with them all scrabbling around in obscurity and financial misery. Anyway, to end things on a cheerier note, the 2000s trivial teaser after this short, short break. Welcome back. So we had just one correct answer this week. I think I made it a bit too difficult, so I've got a, I've got a slightly easier one this week. So... For the love of this podcast, he correctly guessed Radek Czerny, who was, of course, a goalkeeper who was managed by Paolo Souza and Neil Warnock. And Radek Czerny, obviously, played alongside Pavel Nedved at, with his national team, the Czech Republic, played with Edgar Davids, Dimitar Berbatov and Gareth Bale as part of uh, Tottenham's team in the mid to late 2000s. And with Danny Shittu, I think, in, with QPR, I might be wrong on that one, but he did play with Danny Shittu, so... We've got a central midfielder today, a central midfielder who has been managed by Dunga and Jean Tigana, two very successful international footballers of a previous generation. Our central midfielder has played alongside Roberto Carlos, Ronaldinho, Cafu, Ronaldo and Quinton Fortune. So we've got a central midfielder managed by Dunga and Jean Tigana. He's played alongside the luminaries as, such luminaries as Carlos, Ronaldinho, Cafu, Ronaldo that's R9, Ronaldo, by the way, and Quinton Fortune. If you think you know the answer, let me know in the comments section. Let me know on Twitter at whatif underscore YouTube, where I will reside between now and next Wednesday, where we will be giving you episode 33 of the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, and we will be discussing the 2007-8 season of the FA Cup, which we just couldn't about fit in to today's show. So if you sent me a... A memory about that on Twitter, I'll be including it into to next week's show. We'll also be talking about the man, the myth, the legend, Alvaro Ricoba, the Uruguayan and Inter Milan great. And the table never lies, goes to Spain in 2003-04 season. Elsewhere on the channel, we'll be discussing PES 4, Carlos Alberto. We'll be looking at European Championships finalists, South Korea, Argentina, Cantona, the Champions League and the 2002-03 Premier League season. Keep it at what if underscore YouTube on Twitter. Give us a like, give us a subscribe if you even want to bang them notifications on. You never know what you might get. Like you do. I just told you. Anyway, I'll see you next week. See you later.
Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.